You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today I'd like to present to you a product that's made a big difference to my daily routine. So I recently subscribed to the Morning Navigator newsletter, written by Tony Greer, who is a 30-year veteran trader in the financial markets. I think it's very important to be responsible with your personal finances and investments, and you can't do that without understanding the financial markets. So this is where the Morning Navigator fills in a specific need for me. If you're trying to find actionable trade ideas or just educate yourself about the markets, this publication will do both. Tony is a great writer, so when he ties together themes in global markets every day, he does it in a way that I can understand. The Morning Navigator makes complicated finance topics both easy and entertaining, and that's a service I'm personally happy to pay $55 a month for. Now, if that sounds interesting, you can sign up for a free trial today at tgmacro.com. That is tgmacro.com. If you enjoy the free trial and want to subscribe to the annual plan, then you can get a massive $100 off by using the discount code ZUBY at checkout. That is Z-U-B-Y to get $100 off an annual plan. I'm telling you, you won't be disappointed. So go check it out, tgmacro.com, and sign up for a free trial today. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to Real Talk with Zuby. And today we have got on a very, very special guest. This is Texan Republican Congressman and former Navy SEAL, Mr. Dan Crenshaw. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor, man. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. So I know you're at a convention right now. What are, what are you in the middle of? Oh, uh, good question. So we're at the uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation uh, Policy Summit. That is a that is a state level think tank uh, for conservative policymaking, and they bring in experts in all sorts of fields. And we have pretty in depth discussions on, uh, on 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 the different topics. Uh, they just had me up on stage. I was asking me a variety of questions, um, mostly focused on healthcare. Okay. Uh, as you know, we we have a, quite the healthcare debate in this country, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and uh, so focusing on that and uh, energy policy, environmental policy, things like that. I got you, man. 
So for people who may be listening to this, I've got a lot of listeners in the US, but also a lot of listeners here in the UK and worldwide as well. So can you give um, a quick introduction on who you are and how you came to be where you are right now? Sure. So I started out my life uh, near where you're at, actually, in Aberdeen, Scotland. That's where I was born. Uh, and now I have no connection to the UK other than that. Uh, my, my dad was, had just taken his first job there, uh, overseas job. He worked in the oil and gas industry. So Aberdeen's obviously a hub for that. Um, I grew up in Houston, Texas. And uh, my, my dad's side of the family goes back six generations uh, in Texas. So that's where I'm, I'm really from. Um, I've lived all over the world, actually, because of my dad's job. So I went to high school in Bogota, Colombia, actually. I always wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And um, you know, if you can see me right now, you're not listening to this on the podcast, then uh, you see I got, a, I got an eye patch. And uh, that's because I was wounded in Afghanistan in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a SEAL for 10 years. I actually served a couple more deployments even after I was wounded. Uh, in, a, in a different kind of role. I had not thought about politics. Uh, well, maybe we thought about it when I say we, my, my wife and I, but it wasn't a goal. It wasn't, we, we had no path there. Mm. Uh, and then I did my master's degree after I was medically retired from the Navy, uh, went to Harvard and uh, studied policy because of, well, I wanted to stay in some kind of government uh, service and, and focus on some kind of policy issue. Wasn't exactly sure what that looked like, probably national security related because that was mm. my background. And then um, as soon as I was about to take a job in the Department of Defense, uh, the, the next day I was running for Congress back home uh, because uh, my predecessor, Ted Poe, suddenly announced retirement. We had a few months till the primary election, so we had to get it all together and uh, really ran an against all odds campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. This was, I am the exception. I'm not the rule, unfortunately. Uh, it, it's, it's, we, we, everybody thought we would lose. And um, and we almost did. <laughs> I got yeah. into second place in that election by 155 votes, made it into a runoff election. And then, uh, you know, here we are. Yeah, <laughs> so, there you are. So what made you decide to, to go for it? What made you want to get into the uh, scary, murky world of politics? Not just politics, yeah. but, but U.S. politics, too. Yeah. So, you know, when I say, like, we weren't planning on politics, that's true. But it doesn't mean we didn't think about it. Mm. Um, I've always known that if I want to affect a lot of different issues and have an impact on not just different issues, but the approach that we take to governance, that's extremely important for me. I talk a lot about political philosophy uh, and and the American roots and the uh, Scottish Enlightenment, actually. And, uh, you know, the the lessons we took from the United Kingdom and how we created America based off those foundational ideals. This is extremely important to me. And you can't talk about that and or have influence or an impact on those things unless you're an actual politician. Mm. If you care about a specific policy issue, whatever that issue is, you know, get, into, get into the policy side. Go, go behind the scenes, write papers on it, research, um, do what you care about and have an impact that way. But for, for me, I, I do, there isn't a specific issue that drives me. It's a whole variety of issues. Mm. And uh, to affect all issues, I have to be in politics. And so I knew that it was the right place to be, but I had no path there. I'm not independently wealthy. Uh, have no, I don't have any rich friends. We don't have, my family just doesn't come from that kind of network. So, mm. uh, but we did have a window of opportunity and, and we jumped through the window of opportunity. Awesome. And it seems like you, you really gained a lot of popularity with the younger demographic and a lot of your focus has been, I mean, let, let's, let's be frank in the, it's the same here in the UK. 
labor has a total stranglehold on the youth of the UK. Mm-hmm. And in the US, the Democratic Party has a pretty firm stranglehold on the youth there as well. It's well known that as people get older, as they get married, as they start to pay taxes, work jobs, all that, they tend to become more conservative, both socially and economically as well. So how did you reach out to that demographic and how are you continuing to reach that younger demographic in particular? It's hugely important. I think uh, most of my effort is towards the youth. Also, it's just more fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) uh, I have fun while I'm doing this job. They're close to my age. I mean, somebody in their 60s is further from me in age than somebody than a teenager. I'm 35. Mm. So yeah. it's, I, I, I speak the same language. Uh, we have sort of the get it. Um, and tend to vote more left wing when you're younger and, and, and we hope become more conservative as they get older. But that's not even clear. Uh, the reality is an aside and politics is so divisive these days. I was saying when we wear red and blue jerseys in the UK, the, the conservative and labor party, is there associated with that? Yeah, it's the same colors too. It's just inverted. It is? Yeah, conservative oh, is really? blue. Conservative is blue, labor is red. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's hard to take it off. And mm-hmm. um, what I notice when people, even as they grow older, they will continue to do what it takes to rationalize their, their emotional, not totally emotional, but emotionally driven beliefs. Uh, you, you've chosen your side and you're going to stick to that and, and, and you'll very pick whatever you need to to believe that. So reaching out to youth is definitely one of my biggest priorities um, in person and on social media. Uh, just yesterday, I was at three different schools and uh, we'll pack an auditorium and I'll just talk to them. I'll, I'll tell them how I got to the point where I'm. Mm-hmm. I try to relate my story with them. Where, where was I when I was in there and, uh, and how did I get to this point? So, so I, I, I keep political speeches out of it. And because I know we're going to get into the politics and the issues when I go to Q and A's, I always do Q and A. Yeah, kids always have really great questions. They want to understand. They want to understand the why. And I think for too long, politicians have relied on simple, quick talking points. And I, you know, the reason I don't do that is because I thought of my own experience as a voter and, and how I and my relationship with politicians. And I always thought to myself, I, I can't believe you when I just hear a talking point. Like mm-hmm. it, it doesn't create a, there's no sense of trust. To understand one level deeper, just why you think this is important, and then foundationally why it's important. So I spent a lot of time talking about foundational differences between the left and the right. Uh, I, I find that to be extremely useful because you can't understand our specific energy credits that we want to use to clean up the environment. You can't understand that approach until you've understood the, the foundational principles of how we govern and try to explain the policy by itself. What generally happens is, well, the other side will just demonize you, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you just want to do that because you don't care about this, this group of people or this or that. I mean, just name your, your list of insults. Like this is how we got here. It's not that I don't want to solve that problem. I just don't think that this federal government is supposed to solve, right? It should be mm-hmm. solved down here. It doesn't mean we don't want to solve it. You know, as a, yeah. as a, so. people just want some additional explanation. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the same problem, I think, with conservative leaning people the world over, right? Because the accusation is always, if you don't agree with our solution, it's because you don't care about the mm-hmm. problem, whether you're talking about... Um, you know, some issues to do with, with poverty, 
or you're talking about, I know in the U.S. you're having the big conversation about uh, the whole gun debate and, you know, mass shootings and things, right? If you don't support just banning guns or massively controlling them, it's because you don't care about kids being shot in schools, right? You just get all these accusations. If you, do, if you think that exactly. welfare should be adjusted, it's because you want poor people to die and starve and all this. And they do the exact same thing in the U.K. It's, it's very much the same playbook. I mean, how much do you think that's sort of a, I don't know if the right word is a, a weakness, but um, a, a challenge for right-wing politics. How do you get across this message of, look, the government is not here to fix all your problems, but we do care, right? It seems like yeah. the left side of the political spectrum has that advantage of being able to certainly appear to be more compassionate on a surface level. From my own experience, I certainly don't believe that they are in general, yeah. but they sort of have that advantage. So how, how can, what's the way forward on that, especially, as you said, trying to appeal to young people? Well, it's really hard. Um, there, there are ways. First, first we point out that, 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 that what they're talking about is a false sense of compassion riddled with false promises that is, that is the, single, the singular intent of which is to gain more power. Okay, so the, that's, that's really what it's about. and Because the, they'll change their policies radically mm -hmm. if they feel that it will get them more power. It will pit groups against each other at, using identity politics in order to get more power. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you could point out the tactics first. And then you know, why, why, is our, why is our strategy more compassionate? First of all, because it relies on a, on a foundation of personal responsibility. Um, it's, it's something that's talked about a lot in conservative circles, the idea of personal responsibility and why that's important. Well, actually, no, it's not talked about why it's important. And I like to talk about why it's really important. And fundamentally, it's important because it's empowering. Mm. If, if, if I tell you that everything is outside your control, if I tell you that you're a victim of circumstances, that there's another group oppressing you, if I'm always delivering that message to you, which is the left-wing message, mm -hmm. and, it's, and, it's, and it's wrapped up in a message of injustice and inequality, those are their, those are their two foundational elements, right? Injustice mm -hmm. and inequality. They're inherently vague. They're not definable. Well, they are definable, but they don't define them correct. If, if that's their message, then you're always telling somebody that they have no control over their destiny. Mm -hmm. you, you, you remove them of agency, right? You, you disempower them. So that is malevolent to the core. That's not okay. That's not compassion. What's compassion is to be truthful with you. <laughs> that's yeah. compassion. I'm going to be honest with you about what government can do and what government can't do. And I'm going to create a government that is stable and enduring. And the only way to create a government that is stable and enduring is to look back at thousands of years of civic history and political philosophy, take the best ideas, take the foundational elements and the wisdom that we know to be true and use it. And, mm -hmm. and for me, that's what America was founded on. So we forget to teach people all of the hard work and thought and debate that actually went into the Declaration of Independence and, and the Constitution. And so that's always where I start. And, and I know that sounds a little bit, some people would think, well, that's too over the top. It's too, it's too academic. It, it doesn't connect with people. I find that it connects with people rather well, mm. right? Because it, it, it provides you a foundation of like how to think about the left and the right. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, fundamentally that, that, that difference in, in, in the sense of compassion. And, you know, and I could go into a lot more detail depending on the issue, right? Like, so yeah. for the gun control debate, like you guys don't really have that debate in, in the UK. <laughs> no, that ended but, a long time ago. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but we do. And, um, and, and like you said, so the, the, the left will say, well, you don't want to solve the problem, right? You just want to keep your guns. And, um, and well, I, I counter back with, well, 
what's compassionate? Removing people of the ability to, to defend themselves? How is that compassionate? What if, you're a, what if you're a single mom at home and somebody comes into your house and attacks you? Yeah. You want me to limit your magazine capacity? You'll be fine with five bullets. You'll be fine. Well, there's three attackers. You only need three bullets, right? Yeah. Of course not. Why do you need an AR-15? Well, because there's three points of contact. It's easier to aim and it doesn't kick. It's much easier for, for my wife to shoot an AR-15 accurately as opposed to a pistol. You think you're going to be okay at home with shooting across your living room with a pistol? I promise you you're not. You don't have the training that I do. I was in Texas you know, they, in October and I shot an AR-15 and a Glock 17 and I can confirm the AR-15 was far easier to shoot and control. Far easier. And, <laughs> and it, it's, it takes less. You know, so it is a self-defense weapon and that's, that's the mm. point I'm getting across. You need an equalizer between uh, violent men and women trying to defend themselves. Sure. So that's, that's the compassion argument. Um, unfortunately, the Second Amendment community doesn't always make that argument. They, uh, <laughs> they talk about tyrannical governments because, you know, you guys left a bad taste in our mouth back in the 1700s. And, and uh, that's the <laughs> oh, I was not involved. Is. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's, not as, that's not as persuasive to, to a lot of people who are concerned about guns. But, mm. um, and I could go into a lot. We could do a whole podcast on the, the actual data. Yeah. surrounding gun violence and whether or not these gun control laws or removing guns would actually uh, prevent violence and prevent crime and, or even have an effect on, on gun deaths. Yeah. Um, the, the reason, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to have the debate in the UK where there just aren't guns yeah. <laughs> versus in America where it's been a part of our culture for totally a very long different. time. So it's, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it's just not because you know, they always use that argument against us. Well, the, all these other industrialized nations don't have guns. And I'm yeah, like, nice. well, yeah, that's fine. But you can, we can compare apples to oranges all day and, yeah. and not get anywhere. We, we have to talk about what's real. Yeah, I mean, Texas alone is bigger than the entire UK. And so, oh, wow, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, try, trying to compare the, the US and UK have some similarities, but they have some very, very big glaring differences that I think are somewhat right. hidden because we, we speak the same language. So I think people think that the countries are somewhat more similar than they actually are in reality but the history is very different you know the way the the way the governance is set up with you know having all the different states you know being a republic rather than a pure democracy kind of thing more like you have in right. the UK. it's 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 all different um when when i have the i'm one i feel like i'm one of the few i'm one of the low percentage of british people who truly understands the second amendment probably helps that i went to an american school and i know lots yeah. of americans and I've had gun advocates, you know, 2A protectors on my podcast and stuff. So I can really understand both sides of it. I can understand the British European perspective of like, look, just get rid of the guns, right? Like no guns, yeah. no one can shoot anyone, right? It's, and that logically, you know, it makes some sense. But when you put it in that different context and you understand the constitution and the purpose of it and the fact that it's so ingrained in the culture and you've already got, I don't know, 400 million plus guns over there. And the whole point of having them is to prevent the government being able to take them from <laughs> it, right. it. It just gives it a whole different, a whole different context. It, that's exactly right. And, and, and I understand the, the misunderstanding, if, yeah. if you will, um, from, especially from Europeans, because they just, the, the, the culture is extremely alien to, to Europeans, um, mm -hmm. let alone our more urban areas and liberal areas here where they, they also have never really shot a gun. So yeah. it's, they um, and and they and they deep down, I think they want to be European. They're not sure exactly what that means, but they know they like it. Um, <laughs> and uh, but uh, it's because it, it is more about self-defense, as as you as as you noted. And and 
and, and they'll scoff at that, right? The, my yeah. critics will scoff at that. They'll say, oh, are you really afraid of a tyrannical government? Is that, come on, that's absurd. Well, mm. yeah, maybe now. It might be absurd now, but, there's, but, but we didn't expect World War II to happen the way it did, oh, right? That, that was a slow boil, right? In the 1930s, everybody was like, well, well what's wrong with Hitler? You know, it's, it's not that bad. And then they took guns away, mm-hmm. right? And then, they, and then they implemented these socialist policies. And, and yes, Nazi Germany was a socialist country. It wasn't the international communism that the Soviets were, but it was a fundamentally a socialist um, workers' party. And they did this slowly, and it happened over time. And then all of a sudden, it went really, really bad. Um, we see it in Venezuela. We see it in Iran. We see it in Hong Kong. To say that it can't happen uh, just, because we, just because we feel good and enlightened about ourselves now, I, I think is foolish. I, I think it's truly foolish to think that um and uh and, and that's that's a, that's a deeply held american belief and it's, it's it's not going away anytime soon yeah i find it strange that europeans don't understand that concept of a government becoming tyrannical considering you have several examples from the past century alone in europe it's very recent like yeah it's, it's not it's not long it's ago mind-blowing you know yeah because i said i use nazi germany as an example and that was in you know, the 40s but but much more recent than that is the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's yeah, to, it's for people to just quietly accept that it could never possibly happen again is absurd. And, you know, in, in Britain right now, it, it, as I understand it, people are being arrested for, for speech violations. Yes. Um, there's, there's lots of laws <laughs> being passed throughout Europe mm-hmm. where you can't say things anymore. You know, and so these, this Bill of Rights that we have in America, it's, it's so important to us for a lot of these reasons. We can't. We cannot imagine the, the notion of being arrested for, for free speech and then not being able to defend ourselves when what I would view as a, as an, as a tyrannical government infringing on my natural rights, my God-given mm. rights. And see, this is, we talk about rights differently too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, the government cannot give you rights, you know, and uh, that's, that's, that's a really important foundational point to understand, and, yeah. and especially when trying to understand how Americans do these things. The whole idea of where rights come from in traditionally in the U.S., I know not everyone agrees with this now, mm-hmm. versus the way it's thought about in Europe in general is very, very different, right? Here, if people are talking about rights, it's just, this just comes from the government. The government is handing you these things. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the U.S., it's the whole idea that look, rights are inalienable, inalienable, they come from God, and the government is just there to protect them and not infringe on them. And that's a whole different mentality that totally changes the way people look at things. I mean, something as basic as freedom of speech. I mean, having that, having a constitution, which says people truly have freedom of speech. I mean, I don't know. Does any country besides the U S have that? I'm not even sure. I don't know that it's enshrined as an, as an unchangeable part of their constitution, which is how it's enshrined here. The frustrating part, well, if I were in your shoes, the, what would frustrate me is you, we, we didn't make up these ideas about inalienable <laughs> rights. Yeah. We got them from you. I know. <laughs> like, I, think, I think John Locke was the, I believe it's John Locke who, who wrote that, that natural rights were life, liberty, and property. Mm. And we, we stole that. Like we, Thomas yeah. Jefferson wrote that into the Declaration of Independence and said, the, this, is, this, this is important to understand. The Declaration of Independence tells us why government exists. It tells us that it exists to protect these rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He took out the word property. 
Uh, why? Because he wanted it to be an anti-slavery document. So that's a little piece of history. Because they wanted to be able to use the Declaration of Independence to fight against slavery. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want the, the word property was, was, was um, corrupted okay. at the time. So, um, but fundamental rights mean nobody can infringe on my life, liberty, or property. Those are negative rights not a positive right. See, and I think what you're describing in Europe is people view, view, view rights as a positive thing that you can enforce onto people. Um, you know, take, take somebody else's labor, like in healthcare, for instance, make a doctor do a service for somebody. That's why they say healthcare is a, when they say healthcare is a right, that's really what they're saying. And I find that problematic because you have to infringe on somebody else's rights to give somebody something. Yeah. So to me, that's not really a right per se, but life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness those are natural rights. And again, we, we, got, them, we got them from the great thinkers of, uh, uh, that came from Europe. Yep. Well, I, I, got, I got murdered on Twitter about two months ago for suggesting that healthcare isn't actually a human right. But, uh, no, of course it's not. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to get exactly. everybody healthcare. That's not exactly. what we're saying. It's just like when you're saying something is a right, yeah, people aren't thinking deeply about the consequences of that statement. Mm. that that you have if it's a right then it means that we can do anything to get you that right right like make people do stuff for you you have to conscript the service of doctors to do that and that's the no i'm sorry that's just not a right and and also it doesn't even work out that way because like there's a triage system in britain like you know not everybody gets the services they think they need so i mean it doesn't even function in practice as a right uh let alone make the moral argument that it can be a right yeah, exactly. People think I'm, I'm saying, I'm like, look, I've got, I've got three family members that work for the NHS. I'm not, I'm not opposed to the NHS. I'm just saying that it's a, it's a benefit or a privilege of being a British citizen. It's not a right. fundamental human right you'd have if you were, you know, cast on a desert island, which you'd just naturally have. Yeah, people get emotional. So I... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. work so well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially in Britain, I imagine. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah, you don't want to mess with the, the NHS. No. Nah. So. No, no, no. <laughs> it's very sacred here. And that's something that, uh, yeah. you know, well, that's one thing that's really interesting in the U.S. is in the U.S., you guys are still really having like the big debates mm-hmm. here. A lot of stuff is more just kind of settled. I think that's one thing that makes the USA very interesting is because you're talking about these real core fundamental ideas, the gun rights debate, or you're talking about, you know, something as touchy as the, the abortion debate or you know, all freedom of speech, all of these different things in, in the UK, it's like, okay, it's just these, these things are just kind of agreed and assumed. And mm-hmm. these big conversations are, are just, just aren't really happening anymore. Of course, you've got the whole thing about Brexit now, which is relative. Yeah. New, but besides that, it's part of why I find, I find US politics a lot more interesting, to be totally honest. It confuses me as to why some people think these issues should be settled. Mm. Um, you know, it, 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 I'll take one of the, each issue separately. So, I mean, the healthcare debate, it's, um, you know, it's a debate in this country for a whole lot of reasons. Our, our system is the way it is because of a long history of, of decisions, um, that, that were made. Um, we're also just much bigger. We're, we're so much bigger than all of these European countries that have a sort of a single payer system that you really are comparing apples to oranges when we talk about just, oh, let's just copy what the British do. The, the other real big problem is all healthcare innovation, not all, but like the vast majority of healthcare innovation, drug innovation, 
has come from America. It comes from America because there's a profit incentive. Mm-hmm. You can't ignore that really, really important fact. Other countries get to get to take advantage of that. All right. Like, for instance, we're having a big debate in this country about uh, drug pricing. Well, Democrats think that you can just make a law that says drug prices are lower. Just like that. Yeah. Oh, oh I didn't realize it was that simple. Well, it isn't that simple. Uh, when you do that, you disincentivize more innovation and more cures. We're the ones who make the cures, right? And all the other countries. And then, and then Britain, for instance, so NHS will negotiate with our pharmaceutical companies, and you'll get a better price than we get as Americans. Why? Because, well, they've already done all the research and development. They might as well sell you something, right? So, it's, so like, you guys have a huge leverage over our pharmaceutical companies, and they have to make up for that in our own market because we have you know, we have uh, patent laws that protect them. So that's why they're high. You get rid of that. Well, we just, we just screwed the world on innovation. People still come here for the, for the most cutting edge technology and treatments. We can't reduce our quality. And, and, and nobody, nobody can, can, can argue that, we, that any other of these systems have better quality, you know, shorter wait times. We, we have all the best stuff. Yeah. Our problem is affordability. That's our fundamental problem. And so as a Republican, I'm like, why don't we look at the fundamental problem here? It's affordability. You can't afford your health insurance. It's, it's not working well. It's not transparent. Well, why? Because there's no choice. There's no competition. It's not a free market system. Um, people think yeah. it's like this Wild West free market system. It's absolutely not. And so there's certain changes that we can make along those lines incrementally to, to make it better. Yeah. So looking into 2020, it's an election year. It's uh, things are going to be heating up all throughout the year. I, I don't know if I want to do uh, predictions here, but what do you think are the sort of what are going to be the big issues and the big challenges? Where, where do you where do you see it all going? Do you have any interesting thoughts? Yeah, I don't know if they're interesting, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So um, for the presidential election specifically, I mean, obviously, I've got my own election I got to worry about. So. Um, you guys are familiar with Beto. He's uh, he's trying to make his mark in my district. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he's he's got a he's, he's stumping for Democrats down there. So, uh, which actually isn't bad for me because every time I say, "Hey, Beto's here," trying to trying to get me unseated, I fundraise a lot. So <laughs> it's not a, that's actually not too bad. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the the broader presidential election is interesting. I mean, you know, if you'd asked me a couple months ago. I would have said that Elizabeth Warren was, was probably on track to, to, to snag the nomination. That has changed drastically. Okay. She is, uh, I don't think she has a chance now. And I think her voters are going to go to Bernie. Bernie is surging. And I think the reason for that is, is, is Bernie is wrong about literally everything, but he's authentic about it. And um, he, he's believed it for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's not forget he was vacationing in the Soviet Union. This guy loves bread lines. And, uh, <laughs> so, and, uh, and he loves ideas that have been long been discredited and are foolish and stupid and, and will fundamentally corrupt our culture, mm. but he believes it and he's honest about it. And, uh, people like that. Elizabeth Warren is not, yeah. uh, it, you, you can sense that it's pandering, right? You can sense the pandering that's happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and Biden is, is, you know, continues to drop slowly because, he doesn't appear to have the energy to confront Trump. And also, you know, let's say it was Biden versus Trump. I think there's a lot of voters who would be happy to vote for Biden a little bit more of a known quantity. They don't like seeing the president uh, in the news all the time. They, they're, they're tired of all the fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I mean, it, it's, it's, a hard, it's hard to argue that the, the, the Obama-Biden administration in 2016 
that we were better off then when we are now. You know, the only, the only thing better about back then was there was, again, less vitriol in the media. Sure. But everything else has improved, um, I think, drastically. All, all of the doomsday predictions that the left would have us believe never came true. Nope. So I, I, I think they're going to have a hard case to make. Um, and, and also, Biden, honestly, just, he just appears to be losing energy. He says very strange things very often. Um, you know, he's not <laughs> the under, understatement of the yeah. <laughs> understatement of the podcast. Yeah. So yeah. I just, I, I don't have a good prediction right now um, okay. about who's going to win that primary. But, uh, but I, I, I think Trump, uh, if we keep the economy on track and, uh, which I think is, we have a better chance of doing than we did before because we just got a first phase deal with China, mm-hmm. uh, USMCA, which is our North American trade deal has been, um, uh, been figured out and, and going to be approved shortly. And uh, we hope to uh, make a great deal with uh, great people of the United Kingdom. So, and uh, make sure that your Brexit goes well. <laughs> so oh, yeah. We have, a, we have a huge interest in, um, in, in England's prosperity. So, yeah. I don't follow it, man. It's, it's yeah. too, it's, it's interesting, but it's, it's, it's crazy. Been, it's been crazy because it's been, it, it's just locked everything up for the past three and a half years, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like no progress has been made on anything else just because it's just been going back and forth. So, you know, full disclosure, I myself voted remain. And now I'm just like, look, just get on with it. Right. Just, just yeah. go. Right. I'm not one of these, what they call Ramoners, someone who voted remain, but then wants to redo the whole democratic process because I didn't get my way. It's like, look, yeah. okay. It went that way. Let's go. The UK will survive either way. So right. let's just, let's just bounce. Yeah, that seems man. to be a healthy, healthy way to look at it. Yeah, um, meanwhile, much. you guys are exporting your royal family to America. So what's going on there? <laughs> well, that all depends on the Trump situation, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly, we'll so. live in Lo- oh, they always say that, you know. But yeah. uh, maybe the reason they don't want to live in Los Angeles is because Democrats run it. And uh, ooh, as a ooh, result, shots fired. Shots yeah, fired. Shots fired. <laughs> you know, maybe, they could, maybe because the only reason that we've had a homelessness increase in America is because California added mm. 21,000 people to the homeless. You know, 80% of zoning in Los Angeles is single family homes. That's why they can't build more affordable housing for people. You know, and so we get back to this like fundamental reasons why we are more compassionate as conservatives. And it's like you deregulate these markets, people can afford their housing. That's compassion. You know, adding more money to the problem and, and pitting groups against each other, taxing you more. Uh, so that we can we can put band aids on these fundamental issues of affordable housing. That's not compassion. That's pandering, mm. right? That's false promises for the sake of votes. And so, yeah, I just I just went onto a whole tangent about uh, <laughs> zoning because the the Los Angeles the royal family. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, man, it, it's weird. Reminded me of it because you know I, I spent nine weeks in the states last year, and I went to L.A., San Francisco, Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, Atlanta, Nashville, D.C., New York. And so I really got to see firsthand a lot of the stuff that I've heard people talking about. So I've heard people talking about the homelessness and the drug problems and Skid Row in LA and the Tenderloin in uh, San Francisco. And, but going there myself and seeing it with my own eyes and talking to people, speaking to police officers, just talking to general people, it really just helped me to better understand both sides, to be, to be totally honest with you, right? I could see how someone would see this and then think this way. And I can also see how someone would see this and and sort of think the other way. But what I found weird in LA and especially in San Francisco is how people didn't really seem to connect the dots between the policies 
and the results. It was like people Not really were sticking their head in the sand. And I was confused. I was like, look, I'm an outsider. I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not American. But what I'm seeing here does not exist in the UK. I was like, I've been to a lot of places and the craziness, like the levels of it, I was like, there's nowhere in the UK that you can shoot heroin, heroin on the street or smoke meth or smoke crack in broad daylight and mm-hmm. you're going to get away with that. And I, just was, I was just seeing it just, just rampant and everyone was just walking around like it was normal. And I was just kind of there throwing my hands up like, what is going on? Right. There's, they, they coddle that behavior, right? They, they, that need for an, a compassion-only policy perspective, it, it creates a system where you don't enforce the rule of law because it makes you feel bad. Mm. And, but, it, but it's ultimately, um, it's ultimately unsustainable. And so that's one aspect of it. And I think what you're referring to is the simple enforcement of laws. Yeah. Um, so that's one part, right? But then what do you do with people? Because maybe there's underlying reasons why they ended up there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is a vagrant culture. Like some of it is young, able-bodied people who just like doing it. It's, it's actually quite strange. Now, most people are not. And most people don't like being in that situation. But once they are in that situation, okay, why? Well, affordable housing is, is a huge reason. Okay, mm-hmm. San Francisco is, and we already went over the problem with that. So that's, that's one part of it. Um, also, in, in Houston, so in Houston, we've vastly decreased homelessness, okay. um, like by 54%. And we do it because we have a healthy relationship between the public sector and the private sector. Uh, I, I just got done touring a facility for people getting off the streets. And it's like, it's like a college campus. It's beautiful. And it's okay. privately funded privately oh, wow. funded. You know, we, we have some underlying federal funding that helps them out, but it's really mm-hmm. not the majority of it at all. Privately funded. We've figured out how to do this properly, how to get the agencies. Because there's so many nonprofits. One, one of the unique things about America that really doesn't exist anywhere else in the world is a extremely um, uh, robust nonprofit space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, it's a huge part of our culture. There's a, not, there's a vast number of nonprofit charity organizations for just about everything organizing them, getting them to talk to each other, you can accomplish some pretty great things. And, and that's, that's what, what we did in Houston. So we've um, largely solved, and we don't have zoning. We just, mm-hmm. we literally don't have zoning laws in Houston. Okay. <laughs> so, like it's a, so you can just build whatever you need to build wherever you want, let the market figure that out. And as a result, our housing is, uh, is a lot cheaper. Yeah. And everyone's moving from California to Texas to come and change everything and switch all the policies. That's what I'm hearing. Oh, that's an interesting fear <laughs> that, we, that we have as well. But reality is the most, most of the people considering leaving are Republicans. There's more okay. Republicans in California than any other state in the country. Okay, um, just the very, population? Right, right. Yeah. So it's, it's, we, we do get a lot of their more conservative uh, voters. So I, I, I'm a little less pessimistic about what it does to my own, my, my state's politics than, than okay. some people might be. When I was in Austin, I did see a lot of Beto signs, I must say. Austin is basically San Francisco. I was like, is this Texas? (laughs) Well, and Austin had this homeless problem too. And and again, so it's like Austin is a very, very strong Democrat city, right? It's Mm. very, very liberal politicians running Austin. But we have very conservative politicians running the state. So who can you guess actually solved the homeless problem in Austin? It was the state. The state Mm. actually moved them to a place outside the city. So they're not doing all these uh, committing crimes basically in front of businesses in downtown They move them out outwards. And then they, and then they're, it's a one-stop shop for services. Okay. Let's get you back on track. Let's move you out of the situation. Let's stop pretending that it's compassionate to leave you alone. It's not, 
move everybody over here mm-hmm. and, and get them the services they need and, and boom. It, it, this, this isn't complicated, but it does take a little bit of a backbone. And uh, that's, that's the difference in how we think about these things. Yeah, man. I think backbone is a summary of what society needs right now, just in general, across the board. Yeah. Backbone is, I, I bang on about it all the time, but I just, I feel- just wrote a whole book about it. Oh, really? <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, yeah just, uh, check it out. It's called Fortitude. Um, it'll be out uh, in April. Oh, okay. So awesome. It's, yeah. It's a series of lessons about mental toughness and how we kind of gain back our sense of fortitude as a culture. Oh, brilliant. And that's going to be coming out on all the usual channels? Yep. Yep. I think you can already pre-order it on Amazon. Oh, so, fantastic. Fortitude. Yeah. I'll put awesome. my, my plug out for it now. We haven't really started uh, advertising it yet, but yeah, it's out there. That's brilliant. I will be, uh, I will be getting my copy. Dan, I know, you've, uh, I know you're at a convention right now, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you've got to rush off to some other stuff. But um, a quick one, if people are wanting to check you out on social media and follow everything that you do and stay up to date, how can they find you? Uh, follow me uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Dan Crenshaw TX. And uh, I've got a bunch of social media accounts. I won't bore you with all of them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there's reasons for that. The easiest ones, Instagram, Twitter, Dan Crenshaw, TX. Awesome. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Would love to have you back on again in the future. And I wish you good luck with everything in 2020. And um, thank you for stopping World War III. (laughs) Absolutely. It's my job. (laughs) All right. Great to be with you, Zivi. Nice one. Bye-bye. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.